You are listening to the Catholic Recon Podcast, testimonies from Catholic reverts and converts. I'm your host, Eddie Trask. Don't forget to leave a review and enjoy this week's episode. Hello, everyone. Welcome to this week's episode of Catholic Recon Testimonies from Reverts, Converts, and in some cases from Cradle Catholics like today's guest, Joni Watson. Before I get into Joni's background, Joni, thank you for agreeing to be on the program. Thank you for asking me. Yeah, I, Joni is, you know what, rather than trying to explain everything that she does, I'm going to go (laughs) to Joni's website. So this is what's cool. She has two sections. By the way, Joni, your website's awesome. Very well done. Um, So there are two sections here that I think that are really interesting, what I do and what I believe. So she says, I'm a Catholic speaker and writer who loves to make scripture, theology, liturgy, and history accessible and applicable. She has degrees from Christendom College and Franciscan University. She has worked for the church in various religious apostolates for almost 15 years. She does blog posts, Bible studies, podcasts, produces videos. And what I found fascinating is she says, I use every means available to help people find holiness within their everyday lives. And then in the what I believe section, she says, saints are made in ordinary time. We are all called to be holy, but this usually doesn't look dramatic or complicated. It looks like being faithful on Monday mornings, loving Jesus and our neighbor, especially the one that drives us crazy, and constantly being open to the surprises of the Holy Spirit. So. I started off saying cradle Catholic. We had a brief discussion about this Joni that a lot of times the testimonies that get people's attention involve um, some dramatic falls. And in your case, I, I think you tell me what's relevant, but typically when I hear a story, go back to childhood and kind of walk through, but for me, it's fascinating to hear from a cradle Catholic that doesn't have some dramatic falling away, that there's yeah. this nice perseverance that, that's there. So I don't know if you can speak yeah. to that and the grace that's, uh, that has accompanied you. Yeah, definitely. Um, I'm, I'm glad you read both those things from my website because I think they really do and kind of summarize, um, you know, in a way that like my story is not this, a dramatic story, right? It's a very ordinary story. And I'm not probably ever going to write my autobiography because it's not that dramatic, right? It's not, it's ordinary. But so often we're looking for the dramatic, we're looking for the extreme, and we miss where God's working in the ordinary. We miss where God's working just in our daily lives. And so um, one thing I, yeah, so we can go back to my childhood. Actually, my childhood was very formative. And I was really blessed to grow up in a Catholic home with Catholic parents Um, parents who are still married to each other, parents who are still practicing the faith, siblings who love each other, siblings who are still practicing their faith. So really those early years were very formative because I lived an ordinary Catholic life with ordinary Catholic parents who were, who we went, you know, we went to mass every Sunday. We prayed as a family. It wasn't dramatic. And I think sometimes we think like, oh, to raise good Catholic kids, We have to say all four sets of mysteries of the rosary on our knees after dinner. And we have to, you know, like celebrate the liturgical year just perfectly. And, you know, like we, we, we hype ourselves up to, you know, what we did, we went to mass as a family 
And, you know, my dad was an active lector and a Eucharistic minister. And my dad had a holy hour every week. And my dad didn't say like, okay, kids, we're going to go celebrate Pentecost, right? We just did normal family things, but we saw my parents living out the faith in a very normal way. Um, my dad going to a weekly holy hour before he went to work spoke much louder than, you know, some like nice scripted, like, okay, now we're going to have a family curriculum of this and this, you know, like those things are great. But I think sometimes we make it so complicated. Um, we said we said night prayers every night together as a family, not the rosary, the Our Father, the Hail Mary, the Glory Be, and the Act of Contrition, right? But we did it every night. And, you know, and I think we said grace before meals. We ate as a family. And so my childhood was just what should be a normal Catholic childhood. Sure. Unfortunately, it's not, right? And um, that's how I grew up, just kind of in this ordinary, seeing the light, seeing the faith lived out in ordinary ways. That's phenomenal. I think I mentioned this to you uh, earlier in the week. So we have some Protestant friends. We used to go to church with them. And um, one in particular said, you know, I hope that my kids will have a testimony of them saying, I am trying my best to follow Jesus. And they didn't have some horrible experience mm -hmm. in order for them to feel like they can talk about their testimony if that makes sense so she just said this like i just want their witness yes they're going to go through things there's going to be suffering period but i loved what she said because in, when she said it to me and to my wife um that was really speaking to my heart because that's really what i want for my kids you can't uh, avoid suffering but you pray that there's not going to be a rock bottom moment for them to recognize their Lord. And yeah. for so many of us, it takes that type of, of moment. So, yeah. Yeah. And when we were talking earlier about that, that, you know, for a long time, I thought I didn't have a testimony. Right. And, um, I had some friends that were applying for a missionary program and as part of the missionary program, like during your application, you had to tell your testimony. Yeah. And a lot of us were cradle Catholics and we had gone to Catholic college and, you know, and we were like, we don't have testimonies. Like, what, you know, because we, we never stopped going to mass. We never stopped loving the church. Um, but realizing that, first of all, and we, we joked about this earlier this week, but we shouldn't want our kids, like you said, like we, we should want kind of the constant faithfulness. That doesn't mean it's easy. That doesn't mean I haven't had times of doubt. That doesn't have time. doesn't mean that there have been times where I've said out loud, Lord, don't let me lose my faith because I'm on the brink, right? Like we, we, we go through these moments and these dark nights and these struggles and this suffering. Um, but, but and, and I realized my testimony is more, I did, there was a moment where I fell deeper in love with Jesus Christ, right? There was a moment where I, I saw Jesus actively working in my life, calling me to something greater. And that's my testimony. It might not be that I ever fell away from the church, but we all have to recognize the Lord working. So yeah. I think if sometimes we can, we can give people this idea that actually testimony is just the Lord daily working in your life, that if you have to begin recognizing that because he is working every single day and what are you doing with that, what he's doing? Yeah, totally agree. So how old were you when you had that, that experience? So I was 22 and 21, 22 is 2005. And, um, I was studying in Rome, uh, with my undergrad degree, we had a Rome semester and it just worked out that the semester I studied in Rome was April was the spring semester of 2005. And for people who know their church history, that was the, that was the semester really that, that John Paul II took a turn for the worst. 
and ended up passing away. And um, so the, the day we flew over for our semester was the day he went to the hospital. Um, he ended up coming back home, but he was admitted to the hospital and we were like, okay, what's happening? You know, we had been sick for so long, but we realized, wow, we could be in Rome during something pivotal, right? Um, and so that whole semester, we barely got to see him, but when we did get to see him, he was suffering. He, so I, I saw him at his last public appearance. I was there the last Easter, he came to his window, the Good Friday when he was suffering so much, these like pivotal moments at the end. And then um, I was actually in Paris the night he died. And I was actually in front of the Blessed Sacrament at Sacre Coeur in on top of Montmartre in France. There's a huge, beautiful basilica with Eucharistic adoration. And we knew he was dying. We knew he was um, on his last, I mean, even as a doctor's daughter, like I was seeing the reports and I'm like, he's not going to last the weekend. Like there's no way, right? He, his, his kidneys were failing. And so um, there was this urge to get up to Sacre Coeur um, for their evening, not their night mass. They have mass there for the businessmen of Paris at 10 o'clock at night, <laughs> which is just beautiful. That's their daily mass. 10 That's amazing. And uh, there was this urge to get up there for night prayer. And to such an extent that I was, I was running up the steps. If everybody, everybody's ever been there, you run up all these steps. And I was like, I collapsed into the church. I looked at my watch. We were late. Night prayer was supposed to start at 9.30. Mass was supposed to start at 10. So we, I collapsed into the doors. I, you know, I'm sweaty. I just knew I needed to get there. And I walked in those doors at 9.35. And I didn't know that he died 9.37. Um, and so we had a holy hour. We had mass in front of, you know, the mass actually for Divine Mercy Sunday, which he instituted. That was the vigil mass for Divine Mercy Sunday. So we were there. We flew. So then that night we ran back to our hotel because nobody knew, right? We didn't have social media. Yeah. So yep. here we all are at mass praying for him, but nobody knows he's died because we, we don't have what we have today. None of us have cell phones. So we went back to the hotel and I remember standing in the hotel lobby and watching CN, you know, um, BBC and seeing that he had passed away. So we flew out the next morning to go back to Rome. And so I was there for his funeral. I was there for the, the time between his funeral and the conclave where there's nine days of mourning for the Pope and they have masses every day for his soul. And that Rome feels very, very empty. And, and it was a difficult time for me because he was the only Pope I had ever known. And I grew up knowing JP2, loving JP2, remembering him coming to Denver in 93. I wasn't there, but these pivotal moments of my life, he, was, he wasn't a Pope to me. He was the Pope. Like sure. He was the only Pope I'd ever known. And um, I just thought we can't go on. Like the church can't go on. How can the church go on? How can I go on? Like what, what's the church, right? And um, those days were really dark. The city felt empty actually. And I could talk for hours just on that, that those moments. But then for his funeral, beautiful. We slept outside actually in the streets of Rome so that we could get into the piazza for his funeral. Wow. Um, it was just amazing. So I was at his funeral surrounded by people from Vadovice, his hometown, um, and then, I mean, the massive amount of pilgrims that came in, it was just a be beautiful time and just weeping with people and the, the, the rain that followed in the days, it was like God wept and it was just very powerful. And then we were there for the conclave. I was there for all in the piazza for all the smokes, like as a church history major, this was like, like, it was incredible. Like I never thought I would witness white smoke and I did witness white smoke. And we, I, I knew Ratzinger pretty well. I'd read a lot of his stuff by that time. And sure. it was almost too good to be true when the Cardinal said, Yosef, you can, if you watch the video, you can hear us also start screaming when he just says Yosef, he doesn't even say Ratzinger yet. And he like pauses <laughs> and we all go, ah, you know, um, but so those days and then seeing Benedict elected, like I was weeping with joy and it was yeah. like, 
the Lord is still with his church. The Lord still loves us. The Lord still is like, just because we lost a Pope doesn't mean that we've lost Christ. Right. And so it was just very formative for me. And it made me really fall in love with the church in a way I was always, I mean, I was always Catholic. I always loved the church. I always knew the church was our instrument for salvation, but it felt me, it helped me love the church. And it gave me this great desire to pass that love on. And I really felt the call of JP2, all of us there. I was really blessed to be with a bunch of really great Catholic friends. And so we processed every evening, all of these emotions together. And we said, why, why are we here? Why are we the ones in this little study abroad program? Why are we here? And, um, and so we really like took that to prayer. Like, what is the Lord doing with this? And so really answering the call, that's why I ended up studying theology that's why I went, started working for the church. So then I studied theology in grad school. I started working for Scott Hahn. I started just falling more and more in love with the church and wanting to pass that on because realizing all of that was given to me, not for me, yeah, but for others and just realizing that. So that was really a pivotal. It wasn't a conversion. It wasn't a reconversion, but it was a falling deeper in love with Jesus and really hearing that call that I needed to serve him in a particular way. That is good. That is a unique very unique story in many in many respects but there are cradle catholics that will talk about like you just said a kind of a reconversion but i don't remember anyone saying okay i'm here and let's just go mm -hmm. deeper and there's something that that is so pivotal mm -hmm. in those moments yeah because that's what we're all called to do yeah. every day right we never just stay right we're always and there will always be times where our prayer life is better than someday you know we all go through these moments of like really deep prayer and then like completely falling off the wagon. Right. Yeah. Um, and that's why I think that's partly also why pilgrimage has really become important to me and taking people to Rome where I had these moments, but going on pilgrimage because our life is a pilgrimage. I actually gave a talk about life as a pilgrimage and that's what we are all supposed to like. It's not always a U-turn and walking back the other way and reconverting. Right. Sometimes it's just like walking deeper and, you know, a, a, a steeper hill or a valley or, you know, and so our life, we always have to be walking forward. Um, there's lots of great pilgrimage imagery for our life, but we, sometimes we have to make a U-turn, but a lot of times it's just figuring out how to keep going forward. Well, yeah. And I think of St. John of the Cross and um, the three spiritual conversions, you know, there's so many that go through the purgative process yes. and then they can obviously, as he describes, become tepid where they just kind of stay there. And then there are those that realize every day your responsibility grows as sanctification kind of shifts <laughs> in you. And, and then you aspire, you know, to the contemplative life and the illuminative life and, and things like that. But I, I think that so many get kind of caught in that tepid, which I'd also say kind of lukewarm period yeah. where you've put off the ways of the world, the, 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 the mortal sin and then you're just in this cycle. And the call is to humbly, daily, as you say, submit completely to the Lord. And yes. it's every single day. So when you were in your 20s, you had this phenomenal experience. So Pope Benedict is now in office. Yeah. How... How did you continue down that path? So you're doing all this evangelization work. What was that period like from 05 to 13? Um, it was, it was, I was just like, I was on fire. 
Um, I had already read a lot of, of Ratzinger's work and then just reading his work as Pope Benedict. I was just, I was in love. I, it was actually, a, it was a great challenge to me because not everyone, I mean, he's, he's a, in some ways he's easier to read than JP two because he's very systematic. Yes. Um, but he's a deep, deep theological thinker. And so he's not like, not everything's super accessible to the average Catholic. And so I found myself after I, after I graduated from Steubenville, um, I actually got to do a directed study with, with Han on, um, with Scott Han on the biblical theology of Pope Benedict. It was amazing. It was just me and Dr. Han and it was incredible. Um, and so I was devouring all this stuff as Holy Father too, Jesus of Nazareth. And then I come to Nashville to teach and I'm teaching catechists. I'm teaching teachers as my full-time job. And it was really a challenge and a fun challenge to get to give them the work of Benedict when they kind of wrote him off as being hard to understand. But if you read his encyclicals and you read his homilies, especially, I highly recommend his homilies as pontiff. They are so accessible. I mean, they're not, you know, C-spot run. I mean, you have to think when you read them, but they're beautiful because the homilies yeah. are written for us, you yeah. know? And so I always tell people, don't start with introduction to Christianity because it's not introduction. To like, don't pick up that and think you're going to like snuggle up before bedtime and read Ratzinger, right? But read his homilies. They're beautiful. Read Deus Caritas S, his first encyclical. So it was a great time because I got to share this love. I, I was kind of known as like the Benedict fanatic um, during that time. I got to share this love that I had gotten really of him as a person in a way because I saw him elected as Pope and then kind of delve in and get to share his writings. And so I was, I was on cloud nine because I was sharing the faith, sharing Benedict, teaching. It was great. It was great. I mean, again, not to say that like, it was all wine and roses, like there were really difficult times. Yeah. Um, but I think it was a really great time for me to continue to fall in love more with the church. Excellent. And then transitioning into the time of Pope Francis and you're doing all this evangelical yeah. work. I'm trying to figure out where you are now and what you teach, yeah. what you, what, when you are invited to various parishes and you're, you're speaking, what are the themes and where, where did those themes develop? Have they been in your brain for few decades now and you're just seeing them come to fruition or is this just ongoing you keep coming up with with different themes to talk about because speaking to parishes and being on fire for the faith is so important I mean that goes without saying but when I see you speak that is um like many others when you communicate these various themes that are often difficult to understand you bring them into lay terms and you're passionate mm. about it. I think it's, it's a phenomenal gift uh, to the church. So Thank if you, you can speak to that. Thank you. Yeah. yeah. Um, there's definitely been a process and a journey. I never stop reading. I never stop reading scripture and I never stop reading new, um, you know, what, what Francis writes, what Benedict writes. Um, because I think I have gone in, I mean, every Holy father has something new to contribute and you know, Francis presents the faith in a different way than Benedict. And so to read Francis and to kind of, okay, what do I think about this? What do I think about this? And, and develop your own thought. So in a way, what I'm doing now has been the, is the kind of culmination of lots of prayer and lots of reading, not just regurgitating, okay, this is what Deus Caritas S says by Benedict, but how can we take what God is love, what's in that encyclical, which is a beautiful encyclical, and then also take, you know, Francis's encyclicals, Francis's writings, his writings on evangelization and bring them all together. Like that's the symphony of faith, right? How do we bring what, what, what a saint said in the, you know, 12, 
century to what Francis is saying now. Continuity, and so yeah. I never stopped reading. I never stopped praying about these things. And it's been really beautiful. Like sometimes I look back at what I used to talk about and be like, man, I'm glad I've grown up and matured, right? Like, cause you, you mature in your own thought, right? And you're like, oh, I'm embarrassed that I, I know. say that. Like, or, I, thought you know? that, I thought that was amazing two years ago. Now it looks like garbage. <laughs> yeah. Or like, you know, like you're like, oh, I was kind of rigid back then in ways that I probably shouldn't have been, you know, because I just wasn't mature enough to have kind of this nuance. Um, I guess that's a good word. I think, I feel like my teaching has, has gotten to be well nuanced as you read and read and, and pray more. Um, I think spiritual reading is so important because we can get in our own heads about what we think and what we believe. And you, are you, are you checking that with the writings of the saints, right? Are you checking that with the writings of the, of the magisterium? Um, and so that's why like never stop reading, never stop praying because you can get really in your own head about like, well, this is the way it's supposed to be. Well, as a speaker going in doing parish missions, I have a lot of responsibility that if, I'm, I'm talking to people and telling them things. They need to be right, right? They need to be wise. They need to be nuanced. They need to be helpful. They need to be nuanced um, for sure. You're yeah. absolutely right. If you take anything in isolation, then your thinking clearly becomes black and white. And that's dangerous yeah. because then it, it almost, it dismisses portions of the deposit of faith. And I, you know, we see that. And especially now with the internet and social media, um, there there is nuance out there but there's a lot of black and white statements yeah okay someone said this in 1350 um let's just grab that and disconnect right. it from everything else that followed right and it takes it it does take prayer and work yeah. to reconcile some of these things and humility it, and humility to reconcile how yeah. this teaching is expounding upon this teaching so we can right. learn more. I mean, St. Uh, Newman spoke about this yes. very, very well. And yeah. that made a dramatic impact in England because he was going back and he was pulling out these nuances and understanding. I took it to mean when he was speaking of doctrines, and I don't know if you view it this way. I feel like the doctrines need to have a different dialect for each age. Mm. It can't just be grabbed in the eighth century and brought to the present there's almost a different dialect that's how i understood yeah. it because if i try to go back and put on my subjective modern day lens onto mm -hmm. something from the past it doesn't quite get me there so that helped yeah. me understand and i think people get nervous about that because they're like oh you're being you're you know you're rationalizing you're being relativist right like you're saying well that was the truth then and this is the truth now and i think it's it's, it's important to say like no like in the end truth is black and white because truth is jesus christ right yes. i mean truth doesn't change but our way of presenting the truth our understanding of the truth the way we speak about the truth because language changes because you know so i think people get nervous and in in a reaction to the relativistic world we live in we end up like we're a reaction to it and we kind of entrench ourselves into, no, we need to do that, you know, and we get our guard up and that we lose the nuance, right? So just yeah. because you, what you said was absolutely right, you can easily be like, oh, Eddie, you know, says that what was true in the eighth century isn't true now. No, that's not what you're saying at all, right? No, no. Um, but we get, we get so defensive because we have to be defensive of the truth these days because people don't even know what 
a woman is. And so we get all defensive and we end up, I think, losing that nuance um, and losing that ability to really communicate it well. Yeah, and, um, and I, you're right. And I, I'm always trying to be careful about how I communicate that. But when in doubt, for instance, what I said about uh, St. Henry Newman, the way he explained it was mm -hmm. very strong so that you can, if you use the word, it's changing dialect. It's right. not to say that somehow like you said, it's a relativistic situation. Right. Morals are no, lo no longer applied. That is completely right. false. Yeah, but it's it just development. It's development and it is just like councils. It's for a specific age, it's for mm -hmm. specific people. How things are implemented, that's a different issue. You know mm -hmm. what I mean? How councils yeah. are implemented or how um, we think things should be. There's a lot to this, but I will mm -hmm. go back to what you said, where it's not complicated. You kind of present that on your website, the ordinary. Mm -hmm. We, in general, get our eyes off of ourselves in that, like our holiness and the call for us to be witnesses. And we start looking at everyone else. And that's when I think it can get very complicated mm -hmm. because you can always find um, obviously the logs in, in your neighbor's eyes. And I think that by doing so, the, the Catholic church becomes overwhelming for some people because they're yeah. looking at everyone else. And I think the great saints time and time again had like St. Teresa of Avila had this reform minded, uh, approach that was set first and foremost on the interior life of oneself, yeah. not what are these other people doing? And yeah. you know, we, we can't forget that our witness is what can help these people, not our judgment of what yeah. they are doing. So anyway, that's yeah. a tangent, but. No, Ronald Knox has a really good, Ronald Knox was a, a convert um, around after Newman, but a British yeah. convert. And, um, and he had a great quote and I, I'm not gonna be able to quote it word for word, but he basically said like, if you want people to see the holiness of the church, um, I give a talk about loving the church when it hurts us, when it's unlovable, when it's difficult to love the church. And um, he said, if we want people to see the holiness of the church, we have to start by helping them see the holiness of us. Like we start with the holiness of us because we're the church, right? Um, and so he says it much better because he's British. Um, but basically <laughs> start here, right? Yeah. It's really easy to be like, oh, the church is, you know, this is wrong and this is wrong and the world is wrong. Blah, blah. Okay, why don't you start here, right? And if we work with interior, our interior renewal, our interior conversion, that's where we're, that's where we're going to make things holy, right? I can, I can do it here with the Lord. I can't do it out there. Right? That's great. That's great. Um, so the talk that you give related to that is, can you expound upon that? Like when you, when you give that talk, who you're, you're addressing just parishioners, who else do you ever address clergy? Is it all lay, um, so most of the time, um, so like that talk, I call it loving the unlovable church yeah. and I've given it for a, a virtual conference. Um, I've given it for a couple parishes. It also is part of, I have, um, either a day or a weekend retreat for parish and diocesan staff. And it's a mix and match. There's like five talks that the people can mix and match depending on their audience. And I use it in that retreat as well. One thing I, I really, I want to start doing more of our pa uh, parish and diocesan staff retreats, because I think many bishops and priests and leaders don't realize how hurt their people are. 
how burned out their people are, how much their staff are struggling. And they, they need to bring an outside person in usually to help with that. Um, I'm no expert. I'm not a psychologist, but I worked for the church for many, many, yeah. many years. And I think, com- but that experience combined with theology is an important way to help people begin to heal. Um, and so that retreat is, it, it has that talk as a possibility. It has um, teaching them Lexio Divina, talking nice. about the prayer life, talking about the fact that, you know, as a, as of someone working in the church, we talk a lot about Jesus and sometimes we get confused and think we're talking to Jesus. Like we, we get our prayer life mixed up, right? So we think, oh, I pray all the time. I'm always talking about Jesus. Oh, you're talking about Jesus. When was the last time you talked to him? And so we get, we get, we have spiritual burnout when we work for the church because our life is the church and that's not the same as having a deep prayer life. And so um, in those retreats for diocesan or prayer staff or apostolate staff, I want to help people see, like, how do you protect against spiritual burnout? How do you deal with the church when it hurts you? How, how do you love the church when it hurts you? Um, and so we'll see. I, it's really difficult to convince bishops and priests that <laughs> their people need that. Yeah. And, um, and I've, I've honestly had some difficulty as a lay woman. Um, you know, people don't think of lay women giving parish missions, um, giving retreats like that. And so I think, you know, it'll take time. It takes time. Yeah. So you're talking about the spiritual burnout. Does that, so that obviously that can lead to a crisis of faith and then people leave. I mean, have you heard those stories? I don't like making assumptions there, but. Um, Yes. I, I have heard from wonderfully devout Catholics after working for the church. And this isn't an exaggeration after two years of working in the church, she said, I never want to go to mass ever again. Okay. So that's very real. Wow. And she, she worked through it. I mean, she's wonderful and she yeah. realized what was happening and she believes in the Eucharist. And so she didn't leave the church. She did stop working for the church yeah. um, to protect her soul. And it's difficult and it's, and nobody's really talking much about it, um, but it's real. And it's, it's just difficult to work for the person that you are then supposed to be fed by on Sunday. It's just well, hard. You know, and this does connect to this channel because I've spoken to a number of people, even offline and they will say things like the honeymoon is over. They come in, mm-hmm. some of them through some horrific circumstances in non-denominational churches mm-hmm. or, or other Protestant churches, thinking somewhere that they're entering a utopia or something. Yep. And then they, because they're zealous, they go into serving the church, which is phenomenal. But I think the optimism, it's, it's blinding them at times. And they're like, dang it, there are real people. In this and I'm not trying to uh, make light of it, but it is true. Like you're going to, you have to realize wherever you're going to go, whatever parish you're going to go to, your eyes need to be open and realize that's why prayer every day is so important because you're going to run into people. They're going to run into you when you're having a bad day. Yeah. we're all going to run into each other and it can cause a crisis of faith. So I've heard it from that yeah. viewpoint and you're saying, I can totally see that, yeah. I can, you know, it, it's just, you think, and, and even, even just converting to Catholicism and thinking, okay, now I'm, I'm in the church. Life should be better, right? Like life should be easier. I'm obeying the Lord. Right. Um, I know people who are like, I'm working for the church. The church should treat me better than the secular world. Right. I, I would think so. We should hold them to a higher standard, but sin is present everywhere. Right. And, 
the Lord said the kingdom of heaven is like a net of fish full of fish and trash, right? And it's not up to us to sort the fish from the trash. The angels will do it at the end of the world. I would love some days to sort the fish from the trash, but that's, I mean, the kingdom of heaven is a field of wheat and weeds and you don't sort them out beforehand, right? The Lord sorts them out later, but we don't, we want to belong to a holy church and we say the church is holy, but what does that mean? Well, I'm a member of it. And so it can only be so holy. <laughs> yeah. Well, I know what you're saying and bringing light to that. That's excellent because I feel for, I don't even know these people, but I can get yeah. into their shoes for mm -hmm. a moment and realize, um, what am I trying to say? There are a lot of people that I've spoken to as well offline that say, I left the church because, and they'll name one person yeah, yeah. or they'll name two people yeah. or this priest did not respond when I called yeah. those types mm -hmm. of moments 25 years ago, yeah. 35 years ago. And that makes me like tear up because of, you know, we, my wife and I went through a, a process to get for me to return and for her to come into the church and you just want to like grab them and say that was one instance and okay. so it just happens time and time again that person represents the entire yeah. church not it's just the real parish, not just the right. parish. right for some people yeah it represents the parish but for others that is that person was supposed to be um whether it's punctual something as simple as that right it was supposed to be a support for me this right. person stared at me when I, when my kid was screaming mm -hmm. now. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I, and it's tough. I think two uh, things for that. Number one, I mean, yeah. I think we have to do better at just listening to people Yes. and, and, and under, and like being there. And, you know, I, had I, there was a, a woman who, you know, didn't get an annulment, which is really difficult. Right. And so she's leaving the church because she didn't get her annulment and it was, and you just like, maybe she just needs someone to listen to her, right? Like maybe she just needs someone to say, I'm sorry. And I don't think it's a church. We're very good at just saying, I'm sorry that that happened to you. And I'm here to listen to you. Not like, oh, you know, I'll fix it. Or, oh, I'll, you know, you're a terrible person for thinking, right? But just listening. But the other thing is, I think when you're saying that, I think it's a good reminder to us that we could be the reason that someone finds Jesus or someone leaves Jesus. Like, like we are the church. And so we can be a good example. I wrote a blog post about this about a year ago. We could be a really good example for someone or we could be the reason, right? Like, and, and I thought when, especially when I used to work for the diocese that weighed really heavily on me that I am the church when I go out and, and even now when I go out and give talks, right? Yeah. I am the church to people. What does that mean? Am, you know, am I presenting her, her teachings faithfully? Am I loving people? Am I listening to people? Because I am the church and we all are to some extent, right? And so are we the reason people are finding Jesus or are we the reason people are leaving Jesus? And very, as Catholics, we have yeah. to represent the church well. Very good. Yeah. Uh, about a month ago, I interviewed uh, Katie Warner. And so she works for Catholics Come Home. And she started talking about that she would just answer these phone calls and someone would vent and she would listen and they would say, I've never been able to share that. Or I, I forget all the details, but it was healing for both sides. And they would often, because they were able to express that and have her listen and say, oh, on behalf of 
the lay faithful, I guess, whoever I can represent on behalf of them, I'm saying, sorry, that is not, um, that was not acceptable. That was horrible. And we would expect the same outside of the church. If someone, if you were incredibly hurt, you still, you want that resolution. You want that closure and that wound, if it's left open and that represents Jesus in some way, shape or form to you, yeah. that can be uh, devastating. Very, yeah. very devastating. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. Sometimes people just, I learned that that I see, they just want to be listened to and it's hard. It's difficult on the other end of the phone call. I mean, I'm sure for Katie, like to hear that again and again, and, and to, it's not easy. Um, I think that's really what Pope Francis is asking for. I wrote a blog post about this too. You need to, you need you to know, send those blog posts that you're referencing, by the okay, way. I will, okay, yeah. I will show this. Um, you know, I think, you know, we talk about the synod and everybody's having listening sessions. Yeah. Now that's fine. There's a reason, you know, yep. I don't think that's the answer. I think to be a listening church, it means answering the phone and listening to that person when they want to vent, right? I think it means realizing your day is going to be interrupted when someone comes into your office to vent. I think it's being present for priests, like taking, you know, realizing when you stand at the back of church at the end of mass and shake people's hands, you might get an earful from somebody. That person might just need to be listened to. And so with the listening sessions, it's like, okay, you can come at nine o'clock and we'll listen to everybody for five minutes. And then you can all go on your, like, publicly, right? And to be a listening church, it has to be, and it's difficult, it's painful, but I think that's what Pope Francis is asking us to do is to treat people as human beings. Um, a lot of people that I've talked to that have been hurt by the church, they're not looking for money. They're not looking for restitution. They're not looking for, you know, they're looking for love and to be heard. And they're just, they just want to be treated like people. I love and it. And is that too much to ask? That is, that is great. So yeah, I was uh, part of the uh, synodal way in, in this mm -hmm. diocese. And what was so cool is we had this special mass in the evening and with Eucharistic adoration. Um, and afterwards there were refreshments and everyone, there were probably, I wanna say 100, 150 people that stuck around and we all had, we got around these round tables and we had some questions to prompt us. And mm -hmm. my goodness, we were all trying to, and woman, a woman just starts breaking down right next to me talking about, her daughter that left the church starts expressing her daughter's hurt. And so we were there and it was, it was very, very beautiful because mm -hmm. the people responded with so much understanding and like, we're going to pray. And for me, that was, that was what this was about. I mean, yeah. the idea yeah. is not to people get concerned because of what's happening in Germany right that, okay right. you hear us now we're going to conform to the world no slow no. right yeah. and francis never said that right no. i mean it's that whole pendulum like oh this is and like okay they take some nuance he never said that he said he wanted us to listen he didn't say he wanted us to change doctrine but we get all like ah! yeah i think and i think the the headlines start to run and and uh, yeah. people start to infer different things and then it's off to yeah. the races and then when you step back and you think about a listening church, part of it is what you just said. It's just yeah. that it is yeah. to listen. It's not to say, well, we've been rigid on this dogma. Let's uh, change everything. Right. No, right. no. Um, 
and I think that's that goes that also ties to um, the ambiguity. Not to get too far into the weeds, but some of the ambiguous statements on the surface. There, there are people mm -hmm. that will just say everything that Pope Francis says is ambiguous. Well, there might be some things that are for for certain, but a lot of times you have to get the context, the entire context. And we love to do piecemeal approaches to everything. And I don't know if that's just because of Twitter and everything is reduced to characters, but that's the equivalent of what we were saying earlier. You just grab a yeah. statement from whatever century and say, no, yeah. right. that was it. And that yeah. is the end of it. And it's, it's very much piecemeal because again, it hasn't been expounded on or you haven't seen the context the context we don't like to read these days you know we don't if it takes us more than a few minutes to skim we don't we don't have the brain mental power you know and so like just give me a couple sentences from pope francis i don't want to read you're telling me i have to read the context you're telling me i have to read the whole thing right we just we just want you know like we're just like give it to me in three minutes well maybe we can't right like maybe the context is more complicated um, so you're absolutely right. It's, you know, as a church, we've taught about how to interpret scripture. And we say the same thing about scripture. You can't pull a verse out of scripture and interpret it by itself, right? We need to know the context. We need to know the way it was written. We need to know when it was written. We need to know what's around it. Um, and yet we do the same thing all the time to celebrities, to popes, right? We just take it as a sentence and be like, okay, this is it. And do you really understand what that's saying if you don't know the context? Yeah, and if we put ourselves in some of their shoes, we say things all the time. If you just grab snippets of what is said, or worse, if you like take out portions and then bring everything together, we yeah. would all sound like absolute lunatics. And yeah, uh, um, yeah, I wrote especially if we're talking off the cuff, and that's what yeah. it's so funny with Pope Francis that people like act like everything he says at all times is infallible, which has never been the church's teaching on fallibility. I, I just told somebody the other day, what Pope Francis, Pope Benedict and JP two, this progression has helped me is to clarify the statement of infallibility and what we actually believe about the Pope, right? So I think sometimes with JP two, we were like, oh, everything he says is infallible, right? Sure. We were just like in love with him and he could do no wrong. Well, now we know he could do wrong, right? Like I'm not saying that he ever taught error, which a Pope can't do in, in faith and morals when speaking infallibly, sure. but not everything he said was correct. Yeah. Not, you know, and so I think with Pope Francis, we're having to say, oh, right. That's not what actually we believe about the Pope. We don't think that there's some magic power that when you become Pope, you become the wisest person. You have, you know, complete understanding of world geopolitical situations that you like, we act like the Pope knows everything that's going on in America. That drives me bonkers. People think Pope Francis knows, you know, everything about American politics. I'm like, you don't know anything about Italian politics. So why do you think Pope, like, that's a great, we're so American centric, right? We're so American. Point. We're so prideful. Yeah. This man has charge over the church in India. That's a kind of a hot mess right now. He has a church, it's charge of church in Africa where people are getting slaughtered. And we're, we think he's concerned about every single nuance of American geo. Like it's crazy. So everything he says isn't infallible. And we've never taught that about the Pope. And so the fact that we have this 24 hour news cycle where people are tweeting what he says to some schmuck on the street, it's like, that's not a papal statement. 
Oh man, that's good. That's so true. Yeah. I, when I was considering returning to the church, you know, I'm looking at all these objections and, Oh, you know, what, how, how do we reconcile this with that? And it came up that, um, you know, the Pope, it was like, it was leaning towards impeccability where mm -hmm. he himself, you called him Holy father. So then they take that word to mean perfect and he cannot make error. So logically, you, you see the first headline that shows that he is not impeccable. And you say, well, the entire Catholic church falls. Like yeah. that is so dishonest. <laughs> that is so right. such a lazy approach to this. And so you continually see the horrible headlines, anything. Mm -hmm. And people yeah. eat it up without asking questions constantly. Yeah, yeah. And that causes, you know, everyone calling out like, oh, that causes scandal because it's ambiguous. Does it cause scandal to speak in terms of factions? I'm sorry. When right. something doesn't go according to your subjective understanding and it gets a bit ridiculous and it's just wearing me, it's wearing me down. Yeah. But I think yeah. it's important to talk about it. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Um, Again, it's a lack of nuance, right? It's a, yeah. like we just want everything to, whatever he says to be, you know, um, whenever people get upset about like, can the Pope do something? you know, that's, can he do something wrong? Can he, can he, you know, sin? Can he fail? I'm like, well, you look at the first one, right? I mean, we've never taught that the Pope can't sin. I mean, Paul calls Peter out for doing yeah. some, you know, for, for his treatment of the Jews and Gentiles. Our first Pope literally denied Christ. I mean, granted, we can say like, that wasn't, you know, but 11 of the 12 bishops left the Lord at his darkest moment. Why do we suspect, why do we think the hierarchy of the church today is going to be any different? Exactly. And that's, that's where, when you said about faith and morals and continuity right. and everything else right. we talk about, people that watch the program, that's what I'm just trying to get across, whether they're Protestant or Catholic and they just, they love listening to testimonies. Make sure that we um, have a lot of consideration related to the history of the church and, mm -hmm. and stop throwing out these uh, proof texts and mm -hmm. jumping to conclusions based on a headline. Um, like you said, never in history has a Pope had everything recorded. And I wrote a paper recently about Martin Luther and I was saying to be fair to him because there's this book Table Talk, he had followers everywhere with him. So he said some ridiculous stuff that he knows he wanted to say, but there were a lot of things that he said that he didn't want to say, but it's all recorded because these guys mm. were constantly following him around. So wow. I was trying to set the stage and say, to be fair, as Catholics, we shouldn't just grab the most ridiculous comment that Luther ever made and just start plastering it everywhere. That's not fair. So that needs to yeah. be nuanced as well. The Catholic church needs to be nuanced and things surrounding the Reformation need to be nuanced That's as well. That's a great point. Yeah. That's so, a great point. Wow. Anyway um i know we went off on some tangents is there uh, <laughs> you know i'm like are we still talking about my testament no i'm just kidding <laughs> <laughs> it relates i mean we yeah no it does we I, retrace yeah. our steps a little bit um is there anything else you want to talk about related to the cradle catholics those that are um there are a lot of people that are facing what everything we just talked about and consider leaving the church. Can you address mm -hmm. those people? Yeah. 
Um, you know, I, whenever I talk to people, whenever I give my talk, loving the unlovable church, I always have people come up afterwards and, um, and hear their stories. And I always listen and I always say, I'm sorry. You know, like you said, like I can, I can only say, I'm sorry on behalf of my, of me. And, but you know, in a way I represent the church. Um, but I just, I always encourage people to not leave the ship. Even if you feel like you're clinging to the ship of Peter, like you're clinging to driftwood, even if it feels desperate, the Lord sees that you're trying. Even if you don't feel the zeal you once felt for the church, don't give up. Um, it's not about the feelings. It's about the gift of faith. And so ask the Lord to increase your gift of faith. Ask the Lord to increase your zeal. You know, be honest with the Lord. I think sometimes we're afraid to be honest in prayer. Like we want our prayer to be all beautiful and perfect and flowery. And we don't want to show the Lord our true colors. And like I said, I, I have a very um, distinct moment and in my life where I said out loud, Lord, don't let me lose my faith. That's all I could say. Cause I knew it was, a, I knew there was always a temptation. I knew there was always a chance and the Lord hears those prayers. And so even if that's all you can pray, don't give up praying. Don't give up. Um, even if you don't feel it right, just be honest with the Lord and say, I'm really struggling going to mass. I'm really struggling with this person. I'm really struggling. Just be honest with them. And so if you are a, a, a Catholic who's struggling, staying faithful, who maybe feels like they're in kind of a dumpy part of their prayer life, sometimes the best prayers, I, I think sometimes he loves those prayers even more. The honest, faithful, this is really hard for me prayers. Um, but I would love people to know that prayer is really just an honest conversation with God. Very good. Um, anything else you want to add about what you do for, you know, contact. I mean, I need to, I'll post your website. I think it's great what you're doing. Um, keep, the, keep it up. It's amazing. Uh, but yeah, send anything to me that you want to have included so people can find some of those blog posts that are very important and information about uh, speaking because uh, you travel all over America. Travel and, all over. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So um, yeah. So parish missions, a lot of women's retreats, um, parish missions, like I said, staff retreats, I'm actually about to launch a, um, an online community for scripture study where we will be doing Bible studies. We'll be doing Lexio Divina together and it's an online membership community. There's a part that's free and then a part that's a membership community. So I'll give you that information as well. Um, but I think it's very important for Catholics to study scripture together, but to just try to love Jesus together as a, as a, as a body of Christ, like just as a community and be there for each other during this time. Very good. Thank you so much, Joni. What a thank what a you, pleasure. Eddie. Pleasure. It's great. Everyone, uh, please like, subscribe, comment, and until next time, take care and God bless. Bye.